Um, Zookeeper Open, page uh, 1030. Um, let's pray as we start. Lord God, we do thank you for your word. Um, uh, we thank you that it is a double-edged sword that cuts to the bone. Please would you speak to us this morning uh, through your word, by your spirit, uh, that we may learn more about the Lord Jesus and put our trust in him, we pray. Amen. Well, earlier this month, somebody called Jill Sayward um, died. You may well be familiar with um, Jill's uh, story. Jill was the uh, daughter of a London vicar, and at age 21, she was uh, raped in her own home. Uh, and she subsequently became a very, well, very well-known campaigner uh, on sexual violence issues. And in an interview in 2006, she said this. She said, I don't think I'd be here today without my Christian faith. That's what got me through. Yet, in fact, her faith actually did so much more than, than get, get her through. Because for many years afterwards, Jill returned uh, to a small town in North Wales to be part of uh, a beach mission team, um, a Scripture Union beach mission. And year after year, she came back and proclaimed the good news uh, of Jesus Christ, the gospel of repentance, uh, and yes, the gospel of forgiveness uh, of sins. I was one of many team members uh, who witnessed her ministry for many years uh, firsthand. The question is, what gives such confidence? What, confidence that whatever situation we find ourselves in, we, we will turn to Jesus uh, and will proclaim the good news uh, of the repentance and forgiveness of sins in the name of the Lord Jesus. Well, such confidence comes from knowing just how big Jesus is. That, that however big we think Jesus is, he is so much bigger than that. Luke's aim in his gospel is that we should have confidence. That's what he says in the first few verses of chapter 1. He's writing so we can be confident and certain of the things that will be, that will be fulfilled through Jesus Christ. And this is confidence, this is certainty with a purpose. Because by the end of the gospel, in chapter 24, we see Jesus saying that the gospel of repentance, of forgiveness of sins, in the name of Jesus, is to be proclaimed to all nations. So the aim of Luke's gospel is that we should have confidence in Jesus. Whatever situation we find ourselves in, we'll turn to him, we'll proclaim the gospel of repentance and forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus. It is a message that has to go to the ends of the earth because of what Jesus has done. So, so as Jesus kind of bursts on the scene uh, here in, in chapter 3, Luke wants us to know, look guys, he comes. Jesus comes with all of God's authorization, all of God's qualification. Jesus comes, if you like, with a triple A rating. This is someone who is God's man for God's work. He's fully qualified. He's fully authorized. You can have confidence uh, in him. Did you notice that everything about uh, this scene is set up to show its significance? The the stage is really carefully um, set. Three things happened. Did, Did you see those things? Heaven was opened, verse 21. I wonder what that was like. This is what people have been longing for, praying for, for hundreds of years. The prophet Isaiah had prayed 
uh, at the beginning of chapter 64. Oh, that you would rend the heavens. Here that prayer is answered. That the moment has arrived. Second, the Holy Spirit descends in bodily form like a dove, verse 22. This is a kind of palpable, isn't it? Visual descent. You can picture the sort of bird sailing down and alighting on Jesus. You know, the primary place in the Old Testament where the Holy Spirit descends on people is when uh, a judge is anointed, uh, like Gideon, or or a king is appointed like David, uh, or Saul, or, or Solomon. What happens here? The Spirit descends on Jesus. And then finally, we have this voice speaking directly from heaven, but perhaps a dramatic, booming uh, thunderclap. You know, in the Gospels, God's voice direct from heaven happens in only three places, uh, by my reckoning. Here at the baptism of Jesus, uh, at the transfiguration of Jesus, and just before his death. Everything about this, this scene says, this is a big deal. You know, sit up, take note. Uh, and these words that come from heaven, they are rich and deep uh, with meaning. Because what these words do is, is they kind of splice together two ideas from uh, the Old Testament, two prophetic strands, if you like, come together uh, in Jesus. And I just wanted to spend our time this morning just looking at these two strands that come together uh, in Jesus. What is the first strand? It's this, Jesus is God's anointed ruler and king. Jesus is God's anointed ruler and king. You are my son. Uh, These words are are a direct reference uh, to to Psalm 2. I think it's helpful, just turn back for a moment to Psalm 2, page 543. Page 543, Psalm 2. Just so we can kind of get under the skin uh, of these words. Psalm 2, page, page 543. Psalm, Psalm 2 is a kind of celebration uh, of the fact that the promised Messiah is to be a son. Uh, and he is to be a ruling, a reigning uh, king. Uh, the emphasis here is on the son as the anointed ruler and king, a sort of martial type figure. So, so look at the words of the Lord in, in verse 7 of Psalm 2. He said to me, you are my son. Today I've become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way. Just as the title that we have for for our queen, if you like, is your majesty, uh, so the title, the son, the the, the son is is, is a title for God's anointed king, uh, for the ruler uh, of the nations. Uh, This is a picture, isn't it, of a son who is triumphant, who is ruling, who is reigning, who is regal, who's a king. God's ruler over all. Uh, And if people will be wise, they will kiss him, lest he becomes 
uh, angry. When I was at school, I always quite enjoyed picking fights with schoolmasters. I kind of saw myself as a bit of a sort of trade union shop steward uh, in a boarding school. Um, I, I always tried to be kind of quite, quite logical and strategic in my approach to issues, but it was always pointless. It always ended up being a futile exercise. I remember one particular incident where uh, my boarding house master more or less laughed in my face. He said, who do you think you are? It's a 14-year-old boy telling me how to run my house. The Lord Jesus is a triumphant, a reigning, a ruling king. The, the nations, they may conspire, the people, uh, they may plot in vain. The rulers and the kings of the earth may take their stands. What is God's response in verse 4 of Psalm 2? If you've still got it open. He laughs. He scoffs. He rebukes in anger. God, God laughs at Richard Dawkins. He laughs at him. He, he speaks in wrath against world leaders who rise up and think they are the answer to the problems that people may face. He rebukes in anger those who won't submit to him because he has installed his king on Zion, his holy hill. So, so do you see the significance of the words uh, that come from heaven in Luke 3? You are my son. The Lord Jesus is God's triumphant, his reigning, his ruling king. The question is, have you kissed the sun? Have you kissed the sun uh, this morning? That is what we're here to do. That, that is what life surely is, is about in all its fullness. To kiss here means to worship, to love, to, to fall down before the sun who is the Lord and ruler of the nations, to cease our hostility to him. Have you done that? This is a triumphant, a reigning, a regal, a ruling king. God's ruler over all. Well, well t turn back to Luke 3. What about the second part of these words? With you I am well pleased. With you I am well pleased. Well, these words show us that Jesus is also the servant king. Secondly, he is the servant king. And he's come to deal uh, with our greatest problem. Again, you know, what, what we have here is, is an allusion to uh, Old Testament prophecy. Uh, and this is taking us back to Isaiah uh, 42, a reference to Jesus as the suffering servant. So, so as these kind of words boom from heaven, people's ears would have kind of pricked up and thought, hey, you know, what's going on here? There's, there's meaning under the skin of these words. Again, just turn back to uh, Isaiah 42. It's page 727. If you've got a Bible open, page 727. Just so we kind of understand what sits behind uh, these words. 727. Isaiah 42. This is the first uh, of the servant songs uh, in Isaiah. Look at verse 1. Here is my servant whom I uphold my chosen one in whom I 
delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. And whom I delight is simply another translation of with whom I'm well pleased. It, it means the same thing. Look how it continues, verse 2. He will not shout or cry out or raise in voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. A smouldering wick he will not put out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on the earth. In his law the islands will put their hope. And as you, as you read on through uh, the servant songs to the fourth one, uh, in chapter 53, you see the ultimate suffering uh, of the servant. The job of the servant is to carry the sins of the world in his body. So we're told the servant was pierced uh, for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that has brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds, uh, we are healed. So as you, as you turn back to, to Luke 3, these, these words, they're a reference to the suffering uh, servant. The father saying, I'm pleased. I'm pleased with what he is going to do uh, as my suffering servant. I suppose the question follows, doesn't it? Well, what exactly is is the Father pleased about, as he declares that from heaven? What is he pleased about? I think we can say he's pleased about two things at least. I think first he is pleased, in, in retrospect, in the humiliation that has come to Jesus. In the humiliation of the fact that he's been incarnated uh, as a man. That has pleased the Father. Just think about it. The Son of God's lived for 30 years so far uh, in the humblest of circumstances. In Nazareth, no great metropolis, a nonentity of a place. Just as a carpenter, all of his earnings would have been subsumed into supporting a family. He's a nobody for 30 years in the humblest of circumstances. And this pleased the Father. Why? Because his devotional life would have been like no other. His prayer life would have been like a prayer life of no other person who'd ever lived. His communion with God the Father, with the Holy Spirit, would have been unparalleled. For 30 years, he'd been the righteousness of God. He lived a perfect life, unpolluted, untainted by sin the ultimate righteousness of God, and the Father is pleased. I think he's pleased as well because of what's, what's on the horizon, what's in prospect about what Jesus will do. He's pleased because, as Isaiah 53 verse 10 puts it, it was the Lord's will to crush him. He is the ultimate righteousness of God. And by his righteousness given to us, by his atoning death on the cross, we become, we can become the righteousness of God. He dies the just for the unjust. So the Father speaks from heaven and he's pleased. This is his suffering servant. With you, I am well pleased. 
do you see how this, this comes together, how these two strands uh, come together in these words? They thunder from heaven. You are my son whom I love. The allusion to Psalm 2. The, the beginning of the triumphant, the reigning, the ruling, the, the, the kingship uh, of Jesus. The king who is to be kissed, lest he becomes angry. And with you I am well pleased. A declaration of the perfection of the son's life. He is the righteousness of God. A celebration of the fact he will be bruised for the sins of the world. He is the saviour of the world. I think perhaps the most astonishing thing about this is the, is the pleasure and the joy of God in this situation. Did you see that in what's happening here? There is Trinitarian joy um, going on here. So, so you've got the second person of the Trinity, haven't you? Come up out of the water, uh, the Son. The third person of the Trinity descends in bodily form like a dove. And the first person of the Trinity, the Father, speaks from heaven. You are my Son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. It is almost as if kind of God is, is getting together for some sort of party on the banks of the Jordan at this moment. There is joy in what is going on. The time it's come, it's to be celebrated. Well, I mean, what does this mean for us? I think, firstly, there's, there's a demonstration here of the power of God that is at work to save. The power of God that redeems men and women. The power of God that is at work is the mutual ministry of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And it is a ministry in which they delight. God delights in the work of saving men and women. He loves to do it. It brings him joy and pleasure. It's a wonder of that truth, surely, that leads Paul to say in Romans 8... I'm not ashamed of the good news, for it is a power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. And why should we? Why should we proclaim the, the good news of the gospel of repentance, of forgiveness of sins? Why does story Norwich and anything else that we do matter? It's because the joy of God is focused on the saving of humanity. God longs to, loves to, save men and women. Whatever place you're in, God can deliver you by his grace. Whatever mess you've made, he can deliver you. Whatever dark secrets you have, he can deliver you. Whatever background you're from, he can deliver you. Whatever sense of inadequacy of weakness, of helplessness, he can deliver you. He longs to deliver you. He loves to deliver people. Perhaps you still doubt that Jesus can do it. You doubt the qualification of Jesus to do it. Well, just consider this genealogy as we finish. I'm not going to preach through every name. Uh, We'd be here for the next year. Uh, You may have noticed in passing that this genealogy is different 
to the genealogy in Matthew's Gospel. We don't have time to consider that um, this morning. There are good explanations for that, the most convincing of which is that it's probably due to marriage and adoption laws. If you want to discuss it afterwards, uh, Will would be delighted to do so. Um, But we're going to focus on the key point of the genealogy. What is the key point uh, of what's going on here? I think the key point is this. It's to show us that not only is Jesus the divine son, he is also deeply rooted in humanity. He is rooted um, in humanity. You see, Luke wants, he deliberately wants to take us back um, to Adam. This is a flashback, if you like, to, to where it all began. So Adam was the son of God, the one made in the image of God to rule, to have dominion over the earth under God's authority but who turned against God's rule. Luke wants us to see that that when Jesus becomes a man, when he enters uh, the human condition, he takes on that that flawed sonship of Adam. He he brings his perfect eternal sonship uh, to the flawed sonship uh, of Adam. So the flawed children of the first Adam, you and me, can be redeemed by the flawless, perfect blood of the second Adam, the Lord Jesus. It's as if Luke is saying, look guys, here is a whole new fresh start. The Jesus you will read about in my gospel is as qualified a human being on behalf of humanity as there could be. He's qualified for every person throughout, down through and across history. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Someone put it like this, Christ the Son of God became a son of Adam so that we the sons of Adam might become sons of God. Or an illustration, Andy Murray, tennis player, number one in the world, three Grand Slam titles, two Olympic gold medals, number one in the world. People from Dunblane, humble Dunblane, can look at Andy Murray and say, he's triumphed, one of us, one of us has triumphed. He's conquered kind of sense of corporate identity. Jesus Christ is the victor over temptation. He's the victor over sin. The victor over death. He's enthroned as king forever, fully God. Son of Adam, son of God. One of us. One who is fully authorised, fully qualified. Under the blood of the second Adam, God's pleasure and God's delight can rest upon you. And it can't rest upon you in any other way. What more can we say? What more can we say but thank you, Lord, for that amazing truth. I give myself to you. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for the uh, just incredible truth uh, of the fact that Jesus left the glories of heaven 
that were rightly his and entered the mess of our world. He knows uh, what it's like. But Lord, that he led a perfect life is the righteousness of God. And through him, we can become the righteousness of God. You can look on us and be delighted because you're delighted with Jesus Christ. Lord, please would you help us to uh, expand our vision of who Jesus is. Would we uh, be, have our minds opened, our hearts opened to uh, put our trust in him, to give ourselves more to him, uh, to live our lives wholeheartedly for him, that he might be glorified and joy may be brought to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.